welcome to Zero Ambitions, the podcast that has high ambitions about achieving zero emissions. This week, uh, I'm joined by Sarah Edmonds, our co-host, um, and Kieran Cuff, uh, who's, I guess, a pillar of the environmental movement in Ireland and now in Europe. Uh, Kieran, I know going back since, I'd say, 2004, I think, was when I first came across him. Um, and uh, specifically over, over uh, uh, I think the first engagement I would have had with Kieran was over the the implementation of the original Energy Performance of Buildings Directive uh, and uh, going in before a parliamentary committee at the time over Ireland's, uh, the government's attempt at heel dragging. But um, I, he's he's now subsequently uh, been, or just most recently been appointed as the rapporteur. Um, he's an MEP, I should say, uh, for Dublin. Um, and he's been appointed as the rapporteur on uh, the proposed recast of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, which has undergone uh, some iterations against uh, since its its initial uh, uh, publication back back uh, 15 16 years ago or back 2002 I believe originally. Anyway, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're delighted to have you on, and and congratulations on your appointment. I'm sure you're um, you're you're relishing uh, the extraordinary amount of work that you've signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am with with gusto. Um, Look, it's it's a real privilege to be appointed as a, as a rapporteur. Uh, the job of the rapporteur, it's really to reach out to the different political groups within the European Parliament and then to assemble together the collective thinking uh, of those different political groups and MEPs. A little bit unlike, let's say, um, Westminster or the Irish Doyle Aaron, there's actually a huge focus placed on consensus in Europe. And you have to try and work with those different political uh, groups of all kinds of different colours and hues and come together with an agreement that that represents the best outcome from, from the negotiations and the deliberations. So it's a really exciting job to have. Uh, it involves a lot of diplomacy and the occasional bit of pumping the table. Um, and I've done a certain amount of that over the last two years. It's my first term as an MEP, uh, and it's extraordinary to think that I'm representing 450 million people in producing a piece of legislation that will hopefully bring the 200 million buildings in Europe up to a near, well, up to a zero energy performance uh, within the next 30 years. So that's the, the challenging task that lies ahead. I think the good news is that so many people understand that climate change is real and uh, they understand it's happening and that we need to do something about it. But I think when it comes to working with others in Europe, sometimes people are concerned about air quality. Sometimes people are concerned about energy security. Others might be concerned about jobs. And you have to kind of weave together a document that responds to all the different concerns that are out there while respecting heritage buildings, respecting the different climates in Europe from the frozen north to the kind of really hot parts of southern Spain and work within all of this to produce basically a word document that is a law that helps us move in the right direction fairly quickly. 
Oh, Aaron, I think like that, yeah. So, yeah, I was just thinking that you've made that sound like such a lovely story to have to weave and not actually a mammoth undertaking. So fair play for that to start with. But um, I've got lots of in that in that small like introduction that you've, you've given us. I've got lots of questions that are specific. But before we go there, I would love to know a little bit more about your history, because when we were just chatting before um, now, uh, you mentioned that you're an architect in part in one of your previous lives, as well as some other things. So, could you mind telling us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, well, I, I I'm an architect. Well, I'm trained as an architect. My my kids uh, tell me, no, you're not an architect, Dad. What have you designed? Uh, and <laughs> but I did start off as an architect, and I come from a family of architects. My dad, my uncle uh, were architects in, uh, uh, my aunts were architects in practice in Dublin. I've two, my two big sisters are architects, uh, Siobhan and Dan, and uh, I've an extended family of cousins and so on who, who, who've who worked in architecture. People like Ruth O'Herlihy, um, whose mum was Gabrielle O'Herlihy, and her mother was Maureen Hope, who uh, was married to Alan Hope, but Maureen was a great architect in her own right, and she was my aunt. So there's all kinds of kind of links to architecture going back to the early 20th century within within my own background. So look, I trained as an architect. I, I practiced, uh, worked with a few different companies in Dublin, Murray O'Leary, uh, people like that. But then I went back to college to do a master's in planning because I was really interested in the, the city and the future of the city. And back then in the 1980s, we were knocking down buildings. We didn't see the value of heritage and we felt that we needed wider roads to solve our transport problems. So a group of us set up a, a uh, a, an organization called Students Against the Destruction of Dublin. Uh, and we campaigned for um, public transport. Uh, we said trams, not jams. This was in the 1980s. Uh, and we said that we needed to um, hold on to older buildings. And we kind of were successful. Uh, and the, certainly the public narrative has moved towards realizing the value of the existing buildings that we have and towards recognizing that it's not all about roads. We need um, active travel, walking and cycling. We need public transport. Uh, so there's been this huge shift in Ireland over the last 30 years. And I moved from kind of architecture to planning. I then was lecturing in what was then DIT Bolton Street. And I set up a master's program in urban regeneration and development. Uh, and that course is still there producing graduates today. And uh, I had always let's let's say had an interest in politics i was a city councillor in the 90s i was a td uh, in the noughties and then i went back to the city council and more recently just over two years ago was elected as a member of the european parliament representing dublin uh, in brussels so you, you politically as a minister as well kieran as well i i kind of neglected to say that yeah for a brief for just around a year i was a minister of state with responsibility for climate action and indeed for the government policy on architecture. So I've always had this weave of design, architecture, planning and politics. Wheeling and dealing. Yeah, that's yeah I think that sounds great. I mean, I, not, not that I want to dwell too much on it, but I'm sure you um, then must see and hear echoes of the work that you were doing around um Students Against the Destruction of Dublin with the Dublin is Dying campaign at the minute. I'm sure you know about, I, I mean, you will know more than I do about it, but with both the issues around Merchant's Arch and the Cobblestone Pub and the value that people are putting in trying to make sure that it's not just about 
you know, we, I certainly come from like campaigning around preserving buildings from a, from a carbon perspective, but also from a culture perspective and seeing what the value is and that the value isn't actually about, we, we, we refer back to this often, the value isn't just about the cost or the bottom line of what those buildings are, but actually what they bring to our neighbourhoods and our communities. But maybe that's one for another time. Um, but I, I think... No, no it's like, actually, it's so relevant though. I mean, the the, the built environment is, is one of the few bits of heritage that we do pass on to our children. And when we look even at the listing of buildings, it's not just about their kind of the physical value of the structure. It's the, the social, cultural, industrial uh, values entwined in them. And um, the late Rachel McCrory, who was with us campaigning to save Dublin uh, in the 80s, she actually helped write the first legislation that was in the 2000 Planning Act that recognised the value of buildings as being more than their physicality, but also their social value uh, and their role in the community. And the Cobblestone Pub is my local here in Stony Batter, where I live. Uh, and the value is much more than a lovely old three-storey building dating from maybe the 1800s or the 1900s or 1700s. It's about the music that comes out of it and the fact that people come to Dublin to go to that pub to listen to live culture being played out today. It is, and it's the histories and it's the stories that we've, through those places, like uh, for me, for Merchant's Arch, Merchant's Arch was my, you know, I think I walked through it probably 47 times every Saturday when I was in with my friends going from one side of Temple Bar back over <laughs> yeah. to the other side over Cable Street, in and out and in and out, and the sounds of it and just knowing what you were going, what world you were entering from one through to the other. It's like this piece of our sort of DNA and the notion that, that you have to explain that to people sometimes really kind of horrifies me that you think, can't you see the value of these bits of our city? And actually we need to protect them. And, and it's sort of like a bit of a, a wake up call when you see that there are, there are ways that people can push things through when, when they're sort of waving at the magic money pot. But isn't it wonderful that the, the winners of last year's Pritzker prize um, from, from France said, look, yes. the most sustainable building is the one that we already have. And, they, I think, were referring not only to the embodied physicality of the, the carbon footprint or the embodied carbon in the building, but also those cultural and social values. And here in Dublin, in my kind of 30 years of involvement in public life, I've seen far too often the move from public authorities to demolish, uh, because it's easy. It's one contract. Knock it down, whether it be Fatima Mansions, Ballymun, or mm. other housing schemes in in the country. We even saw a move to knock down some of the Herbert Sims buildings, such as um, uh, Bally, in, in Ballybock. But thankfully, people kind of, they, they understood what was going on and they said, hold on a second, mm. that doesn't make sense. No. We need to hang on to these buildings. We need to um, retrofit them, mm. regenerate them, refurbish them. And for the most part, we should be able to hang on to them. But mm. by the same token, we're seeing a huge loss of, mid-late 20th century buildings in Dublin and the replacements, I would certainly wonder whether they are better than the original buildings. So this, I think, is probably a good um, point to sort of talk about what, um, you know, with the Energy um, Performance Buildings Directive and things that we talk about in terms of like seeing the whole of the building, the whole of that 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 part of, of, the, um, yeah, of the city or the place that we're talking about. 
we we're very keen on on retrofit and not so much as an activity of insulating bits and pieces of buildings or upgrading windows per se but actually as a societal tool for improving lives and for continuing to to heal our places or to allow for communities to flourish and when you see it on that sort of big scale and when you start to look at what the value of doing such a thing might bring rather than how much that thing might cost we talk about it in the gains and the net gains of like what that might bring local local economies that might spring up around that and um, it makes you realize that what's really important is understanding the full context the whole context and not just like a standard to hit or a, a bottom line to reach um I wonder, could you, for the benefit of our listeners, tell them a little bit about what the Energy Performance Buildings Directive is? Yeah, um, the directives are European laws and uh, there's a requirement on countries, on the member states like Ireland, to comply with European laws. And a huge amount of the legislation around social issues, um, environmental issues and economic issues comes from Europe. And so we've had this Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. The first iteration, as Jeff said, was back, I think, in 2002. And the second iteration was perhaps 10 years ago. And now we're moving into kind of the third wave of looking at upgrading buildings. And essentially, we are trying to ensure that build buildings become energy producers rather than energy consumers uh, around Europe by the year 2050. That sounds very abstract. But if I can give you an example. I was out with a, a pal I was in college with out in um, Dunleary and he had just built a house and I'm sure Jeff knows who it is and where it is and you may know it too. Uh, it was a house in a muse on a muse site and that house generates more uh, energy, more electricity than it consumes. It's built to a passive house standard. Um, there's a battery pack in the house and that charges up from both the roof, uh, from the photovoltaic panels on the roof and it's also used to charge a vehicle that's uh, right beside the house. And it allows the car to be driven 10, 15,000 kilometers a year. And as we look around Europe, we're thinking of the building as, I suppose it goes back to Le Corbusier, a machine for living in. Mm -hmm. the, the home or the building can provide the power that you need in your daily life. It was Buckminster Fuller who asked, how much do our buildings weigh? And that was seemed like a crazy question. 40 years ago, but he actually was starting to ask about things like the, the carbon footprint of the building or the energy performance to look at the kind of the bubble, the, the kind of the envelope of the building and look at the inputs and outputs. Mm. And I think more and more we're starting to think about that. About 10 years ago, Brian O'Brien, who was working with Solar, he started talking about, um, so we set up a branch of the Living Buildings Institute from the Pacific Northwest. And they had this petal system of recognizing the value of a building. How much water does it use? How much electricity? How much of the food that you need can you grow on the building or in its surroundings? How much water can you gather? And that got me thinking about, really, all of this should figure in our discussion over the building. Now, this piece of law, the EPBD, the European Performance of Buildings Directive, it focuses in specifically on the energy use, but it's also starting to look at the embodied energy. Are we using a type of material that requires a lot of carbon, like conventional concrete, which is responsible for 9% of the globe's emissions, 
uh, greenhouse gas emissions or are we looking at the use of timber? So these kind of discussions will come to the directive. But first and foremost, we're trying to get the energy use and the greenhouse gas emissions right down over the next 30 years. It's a kind of a it's a lifetime's worth of work. And yes, the main reason we're doing it is to lower our greenhouse gas emissions because 36% of Europe's greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings, 4%, 40% of the energy is used there. But the other benefits in creating decent, sustainable jobs, in tackling uh, energy poverty, fuel poverty, we would call it uh, in Ireland, of mm. basically saving on fuel bills, creating jobs, there are other wins other than the climate uh, uh, that comes in this. Well, that's true. We often um, talk about um, retrofit in this term as well, where if you park the climate question and the and the problem around that for a moment, the benefits that are often referred to as co-benefits are actually just benefits in and of themselves that will absolutely improve that particular thing. So there's the, the health burden, let's say, of living poorly insulated and, and poorly performing buildings. And that, 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 yeah, that that burden that the NHS is put under in the UK, let's say, there's a value to that, that by actually looking after our buildings and the environments that we live in, where we spend over 90% of our waking hours, um, in improving those, that's that's a direct win and benefit that we should be playing up. So what you gain is that you gain a healthier environment and you gain these things. And then you gain sort of local economies where you have people who are trained and upskilled to meet the demand for people to want those work stuff or for local councils to need those skills to put that in, you know, the, the VAT collection that can happen in that local neighbourhood by, you know, these small businesses arriving. And then you put back in the climate problem, <laughs> this massive climate problem. Yeah. And you're also benefiting that as well. And painting it in those positive terms is, I think, a really important part of the jobs that we're all doing as well, because, you know, looking at sustainability, it was always sort of like an extra, an add-on, a thing you had to pay for, something that you're going to have to give up instead of something that actually feeds fundamentally into our thoughts and our processes about how we change the, the system and how we reassign the value from the bits that we've currently got a bun fight over and actually into a much more kind of open discourse about, you know, here is a moment of opportunity and creativity. What are we going to do with it? Absolutely. And it's a moving target as well. And new issues come into play as time goes on. And look, I've been in the Greens for 40 years, so I've watched kind of different, different concerns rise and fall from acid rain and the nuclear threat to kind of new challenges today. But even over the last two years with the pandemic, we've uh, understood the um, hugely important value of good indoor air quality and fresh, clean air. We've understood the value of good outdoor space. Uh, people who are trapped in the pandemic in, in shoebox apartments without a balcony versus uh, others who have a back garden and generous indoor space. So there is an issue of equity in this whole debate as well. But coming back to the kind of the social aspects of improving buildings, I mean, I've spent most of the last 30 years as a local councillor here in Dublin in the south inner city and the north inner city. And I could pull up photographs of um, mould on walls from poor air quality, from high levels of humidity. And I have the stories that go with them of uh, children with asthma and other respiratory complaints. So we recognise the huge importance of good quality environments indoor and out outside our buildings. So 
one of the other reasons for upgrading, apart from the climate aspects, is just to give good health to our citizens. And I, I, I certainly think when it comes to the renovation wave, as, as we, we call it, uh, it's important that we start with social housing, with public housing and uh, other forms of social housing, because typically that's where the risk of, of, um, of, um, of fuel poverty is highest. Uh, and I think it's a good place to start as well because you can you can scale it up. You can mm. talk to yeah. the European Investment Bank about um, can you give us a hundred million or fifty million over a thirty year period to upgrade ten thousand dwelling units. So that's where the e- economies of scale kick in, and it starts to get quite interesting. And do you, do you have a sense, Kieran, in because uh, of course you're you're going into this process now as the rapporteur on on the recast. Energy Performance Buildings Directive, having done the same same process with with the renovation wave report, um, the own initiative report that that, uh, that you produced for the Parliament, um, uh, what a year or two a year ago or so, I don't know what this yeah, year. a year um, ago. Uh, so you you obviously have a feel that's now for uh, you know uh, for for how the process is likely to work and so on, and the different factions that you're dealing with. Do you have a sense from that uh, that there's Kind of a broad acceptance, taking account of how what, you know disparate the different uh, views, the different groups that you're dealing with may be. Um, is there a sense that of, of any sort of degree of coalescing and and, and acceptance um, of uh, of these kinds of issues that not every route to decarbonisation is equal? You know uh, that there that there are some yeah. approaches that, that are more beneficial, and 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 uh, and and is there any sense that that with the current you know, energy crisis that we're in the throes of right now, um, and the and the issues hanging over Europe with with uh, with energy supply from from the east. Um, uh, is, is, do you think that there's a sense now, an impetus and a, and, a, and a sense and an opportunity to kind of try and achieve meaningful change? In a crisis, there is always confusing messages um, feeding into the discussion. So even in Ireland, you have those who say, look, get rid of the carbon tax. Now is not the time. There's never any perfect time uh, to have a, a to a higher price on carbon, but it will incentivize change. I think um, there are different opinions within Europe. If you go to the far right, they would argue there's no need to intervene at all in the market. If you go to the far left, people would say this should have happened yesterday. What's interesting is when you look at the middle ground uh, in Europe, the European People's Party, uh, the progressives, um, Renew Europe. These are the kind of the Fine Gaels, the Fianna Fáils and the Labours uh, of Europe. And there is a big shift towards recognising we need to take climate action and that we can align this with other social goals of improving the quality of life uh, for all. The challenge in all of this, I guess, is the money. Um, if you simply look at the payback period, you can argue it doesn't make sense to do a deep retrofit. But if you look at the other improvements that you get with the retrofit, the indoor air quality, the comfort levels, the benefits to the local economy, the benefits uh, to a group of people who are vulnerable, the benefits to decarbonisation, then it starts to, to stack up. And what I found interesting, uh, Alice Charles is a, a friend and colleague who works with the World Economic Forum, and she dragged me into a kind of a subgroup of the World Economic Forum looking at the built environment. And when I sat in the 
the room, obviously a virtual room with COVID, but when I sat in, in those calls, listening to the European Investment Bank, the European Central Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, as well as the private sector, the Blackstones and these huge property owners, sometimes cast as, as the bad guys, but you know, there's always a bit of both in, in any large company. But they were all saying, we have the money, we're prepared to put it into this, give us the regulatory certainty and we will move. And that's a constant theme when it comes to decarbonisation. We know we need to do something about climate change. Bring us the law, show us where we have to be in 2030, 2040, 2050, and we'll deliver. And, you know, I, I often say the Chinese have five-year plans. Having a five-year plan concentrates the mind. We need more of them in Europe to know where we need to be in 2027, 2032, and so on. This is, a, a, this is the crux of the matter, really, isn't it? This is about... Um you know, action and it's about what we're aiming for and this regulatory landscape that we're within because you know, there's lots of activity going on around the grassroots movements and, and bringing that into play and actually representing people and their lives and what they need and trying to give them a voice. The regulatory side of things is something that is um, quite intriguing at the moment because we mentioned that there's this risk of divergence from the UK leaving Europe and not and then sort of almost having to recreate something themselves. The future home standard was something that was consulted on um, not so long ago and really, frankly, was not up to scratch. It was no, nowhere near ambitious enough. And there was a lot of pushback and a lot of consultation from the industry in the UK to say, you know what, that needs to be better. Now, thankfully, they did listen to some of that and there are parts of that that are better. But you can absolutely argue that it's still not good enough because what it's setting us up for is a regulatory environment over here whereby buildings that are built now will have to be retrofitted in the next yeah, 10, 15, 20 years. It's absurd. simply not ambitious enough. And what strikes me as sort of crazy about that is that we're talking about a change. We're talking about a change that people are ready for and people want guidance in how to deliver that. This is the opportunity to be really ambitious about that. And so quite what's happening, I could be cynical and I could say what I think about what's happening in the background of those things and who maybe has the ear of people making these decisions. But it is about being ambitious. And I liked what you were talking about earlier on when we were mentioning about um, the living building standard and, and, um, and, um, and, and, and sort of pushing really far into actual regenerative terms because still being a bit sustainable is only being a little bit less bad. It's still bad. You know, you've got to come much, much further along where you are, as you said, your buildings are no longer consumers. They are generators of, of all sorts of positivity. And, you know, energy is the one to focus on because we can measure that. And um, so I kind of feel like when we are in a time of a emergency, we really need to be aspiring higher because we're able to deliver it. We know we can deliver it because we just need to have more trust in in those people in that chain to do that. I don't know. And, and yet the, yeah, and yet the status quo is very hard to shift. Uh, uh, I think we know where we want to get to. We know what we need to do. Um, but to kind of get out of the status quo of, of the kind of choices we make every day is challenging. And those are the conversations I have with my MEP colleagues let's say colleagues who would come from car producing regions in northern France or southern Germany when do we phase out the internal combustion engine I mean clearly it would make sense to have 
what we call an ice ban, an internal combustion engine ban tomorrow. Um, but production lines have to change and the manufacturers will say, oh, 2035, 2045, give it time. And I'm saying, no, we need to, we need to be kind of on a war footing. In, in the 20th century, in one decade, we, we fought two world wars. One was four years long, one was six. So, so we can innovate and change very rapidly if the political will is there. And I think in face of the climate crisis, we do need to move as quickly as we can. And it's not just in construction, it's in transport, it's in energy, it's in uh, agriculture. And the kind of conversations I'm starting to have, they do reflect this. I mean, I've had a lot of chats in over the last few weeks about an electricity interconnector between Ireland and Spain. That sounds like kind of Star Trek stuff if I had talked about that 10 years ago. Mm. But actually, an electricity cable that could export electricity from offshore wind farms in Ireland on a windy day down to Spain and Portugal when it's calm there, or up from Portugal when it's windy in Portugal and calm here. It's a game changer. Mm. Uh, and we're building cables of this length around Europe at the moment. So the technologies are are evolving, are emerging that can fill that gap. And you both know from the world of physical construction uh, that we can do this. We can build the positive energy building now. And yet we need to make that affordable and achievable for everyone, whether they be a local authority housing tenant in a high rise block in London or whether they be somebody living in a one off house in rural Ireland. If I might even challenge the notion of if the political will is there, I think this is where we've got a bigger stumbling block in, in the UK, frankly. Um, I, I see local government around with really high aspirations and trying incredibly hard to deliver what they can. And I, I, I feel a great empathy for, for um, local government in the UK um, because they're pressed from both sides. I see a, um opinion from people, from... Um, constituents from neighborhoods from people are concerned about the climate they want to see change happen and they want to see it delivered and yet if I'm really honest we have central government dragging their feet and talking about everything but what they should be talking about and putting their energies into what appears to be um protecting the the particular interests of themselves and that's a really worrying and um, concerning place, I think, for the, the UK to be currently, because we don't need to, to be there. So if it's if the political will is there in Europe, I'm, I'm kind of I'm hopeful that that can. Um, I suppose what I'm coming back to is you mentioned right at the beginning about how you communicate with your other MEPs about this consensus. And that consensus, I think, is a really important thing So it shouldn't be about whoever shouts loudest gets the the response but that you have to try and find the common ground and i worry that that's lacking in at, at the uk i would also be yeah and i'd be worried about um uh, within europe you have the, the ability at times um uh especially when you have probably outward looking countries participating in this project to to influence each other um so ireland's just passed um uh a just introduced a new national retrofit scheme um, this yeah. week, um, which looks on a European scale. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll be able to pick holes in it once I go through it in, in, in more detail, of course, and that's my job. Um, but um, it looks at 
extremely progressive um, in terms of the scale of it, in terms of, of uh, the, the kinds of measures, the, the overall consideration of the design of it uh, in terms of thinking about how it will work um, looks extremely well done. And there's potential within a project like the European project um, for that to influence, uh, you know, if, if, if little old Ireland can do it, then there's this, this scope for all of Europe potentially to follow. I'm hoping that isn't lost now, that, that, that opportunity um, uh, with, with the United Kingdom. I'm hoping that, the more, that at least the more progressive uh, uh, devolved assemblies, even within the UK, for instance, um, can, can continue. And I should say that when it comes to this, uh, this, this policy, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, I, uh, as soon as Brexit happened, or as soon as the referendum rather happened, uh, the referendum vote, I contacted uh, the various devolved assemblies in the UK to ask um, about uh, basically what their intentions were in terms of complying with, with this directive and with the nearly zero energy building target as it was. Um, I probably mentioned on the podcast before, but um, I got I got identical answers from Scotland and Wales, um, which are both very positive. And when I say identical, I mean there was there was two sections of text, uh, paragraphs of text that were copy uh, word for word, literally <laughs> copy and paste job. Didn't mind because they were saying positive things, and that I guess guess some degree of collaboration, which is great. Nothing out of Northern Ireland because they had no government, uh, mm-hmm. as they, again the case now. And in at Whitehall, I got the most beautifully constructed nothing burger. They basically said, if I can recall this, um, they said the directive requires uh, nearly zero energy buildings to be cost optimal. Now, it didn't actually say that. It said that by the time the directive, by the time NZ becomes a requirement it, sh- uh, it should have aligned with cost optimality but should, you know uh, because because of economies of scale and so on um, um and we've done our cost optimality therefore we've done enzeb that's what they were <laughs> so oh, right. it, was, it was just the most extraordinarily beautiful i could see sir humphrey there in the background you know uh, uh, authoring this um but yeah. uh, i just i worry about um and, and it has implications too because in ireland for instance the architecture of our compliance um of our well, uh, the architecture of of, of our whole, whole system underpinning uh, transposition and compliance, rather with the with the Energy Performance Buildings Directive, is based on UK uh, policy. Um, it's based yes. on UK software tools, for instance, as well. And you, uh, and um, I, I, I would just worry uh, uh, when that divergence happens that it may have implications for even for countries like Ireland. You know. Oh, I think it does. And I think it is a concern. And it's a concern when it comes to uh, construction materials going between Ireland and the UK and, and, and vice versa. But the bigger picture, I remember the head of the European Environmental Agency giving a talk in Dublin a few years ago. And he said that, look, the big problems of our time, the, the huge challenges of, of uh, climate change, of globalization, of migration, uh, and more recently of COVID, they don't recognize borders. They 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 transcend borders, and we have to cooperate at a regional, if not a global scale. So I think the possibility for any country to uh, indefinitely pull up the drawbridge and say we're going it alone, mm. it can't last. And I I think the UK is realizing that, uh, and I think in some areas it is working with with other countries, and it will have to increasingly uh, in the future. The other thing is. I wouldn't like to paint the European Union as a an incredibly progressive body where we all agree with each other. I, I mean, once a month, I do sit down with my Nordic colleagues from the green uh, groupings in Finland, um, Sweden and Denmark, and we, we largely agree about things. 
Uh, but that's one particular grouping of countries. Mm. If I go into Central Europe, uh, you'll find huge resistance. Uh, there is so much of the economy is tied up with the with the mining of lignite, with coal, with steel, mm. uh, with heavy industries. Uh, as a result of which, people are dying uh, young by their tens of thousands due to air pollution. If you go into Southern Europe, you'll find other uh, concerns at play. So we're certainly not uh, all working as a progressive bloc within the European Union. And that's what I find interesting about the European level politics. You have to find what floats the boat of mm. an MEP from Romania who's lost 60,000 jobs in coal mining and mm. show them that maybe energy security from Russia is, is going to be important for them uh, in the near future. And that, that that's a kind of a lever that can work with them. I think that's um that's a, it's a great reminder I think as well because we can all get a little bit like you know stuck in the mire of well immediately the outlook isn't great here and what's happening and but actually what you're talking to again comes back to this idea of consensus and collaboration and that's where I think a lot of real um exciting things are happening so taking uh, as a specific example is the work that ACAN are doing Architects Climate Action Network that is fundamentally individuals concerned within an industry and coming together to share knowledge, to put effort in, to try and um, collaborate, to bring about change from within those industries. And it's incredibly successful because actually in COVID, what happened was it sent us to, um, it, you know, we, we had been meeting, it was sort of started out as a very London centric thing. Um, but then, you know, we didn't have that any longer, couldn't meet in person and it all went online. And then suddenly we have, you know, ACAN is all across the UK, but beyond that, we've got ACAN Northern Ireland, we've got ACAN, we've got the Nordic countries as well in, in a collaborative ACAN grouping, we've got ACAN Portugal, ACAN India, all these groups that have started up because of a recognition of something that needs to change from within an industry that affects us all globally. And that's really interesting because there's a huge opportunity for learning and knowledge share, but also for, um, yes, I suppose, for, for collaboration and, and for seeing well, what do you need that we can maybe help you with? And what could, what messages can we share that actually help bring us all along? Um, and I think there are lots of examples of that. ACAN is one. Um, and there are there are others as well, which I think is where you pin your hope, really, because then you see that actually positive change is possible. And people do want that when you get down to the individual level, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. And at a European level, Often you do have to work with the lowest common denominator. So within the revisions of the European Performance of Buildings Directive, uh, we're looking for minimum energy performance standards, MEPs, uh, and we want each country around Europe to bring in minimum energy performances by 2027. Now, that might be an F energy rating. I mean, obviously, I'd love to go higher, but we have to bring kind of the, the least willing uh, mm. uh, as well as the most willing along with us uh, so i think we will get some stock right you're talking about yes. That, yes. so that, that that's quite a, a revolutionary idea you know it may not be enough uh with for, you know given the planetary emergency we're in but still it's um it's you know as a concept uh i think it's i think it's very interesting you know um, um no and, i i think it could be and i think it could be quite progressive hmm. and you're talking this there's a talk about aligning the, the energy ratings across Europe as well, uh, which uh, I haven't got really got my head around what what, what exactly what that would mean because you've got different. Um, I know that uh, we, we've seen 
uh, even in guidance documents that the Commission's produced for member states on the on the on the previous version of the Recast Energy Performance Buildings Directive, there are quite significant differences between the ambition that the Commission was suggesting that member states should have in the different climate zones, for instance. And I mean in terms of specific kilowatt hour primary energy totals for buildings and, and specific renewable energy generation totals and so on. Um, uh, and then even in things like, um, you know, uh, uh, requirements or recommendations that member states should uh, ensure indoor air quality is, is right and, 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 uh, and, and should address the performance gap and should calibrate actual performance against calculated performance and so on. Um, and I know when I went to, to the officials in the, the building standards section, for instance, of the Department of Housing in Ireland, in Ireland is pro probably, I would say, um, uh, a relatively good performer at, at a European scale in terms of what, what it's done uh, on building standards and so on, I suspect in large part due to having the Greens in government uh, from 2007 to 2011. Um, but, um, but the point is that um, these uh, the, the response I got from the official in question was that this, the, the commission's targets were just not realistic, you know? Um, so. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it uh, how it develops. I mean, there is quite a bit of detail in the draft proposals. For instance, that public buildings uh, from 2027 would reach an F and an E by 2030. That non-residential buildings would have that F by uh, the the same date, actually, uh, and that residential buildings uh, from 2030 would have the F and from 2033 would have the E. Now, we'll have all kinds of rows and discussions as to what we can push on this. And I think particularly looking for a common European energy certificate with uh, the same values on it. It could be something like the Irish one where we're looking at the amount of energy used and the CO2 emissions, but different countries have different ways of doing this. Uh, mm -hmm. And clearly the climate zones vary dramatically particularly throughout the European Union. So I think that's where a lot of the discussions will be over, over the years ahead. But one thing I'm quite heartened by is the, the long-term renovation strategies uh, are being replaced by renovation plans that will contain information on both mandatory and indicative parameters, and they have to be revised every five years. So this, I think, will pull all the different countries together, and every five years, We'll be comparing notes with how we're doing and what some countries need to do more of compared to others. And on, um, and on, and on embodied carbon, sorry, Sarah. Um, no, you're okay. uh, on embodied carbon, um, there's a there's a it's, there's a sense from what I read about this before that that uh, the commission was pushing to be to be quite ambitious, but uh, that even getting getting targets is probably not going to happen at this stage, and just getting a getting a, cal a calculation requirement might be the be the aim. Can you give a bit more clarity on on where 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 that's where that's going? Yeah. Um. So the proposal has the idea within it of considering the life cycle global warming potential of new. Buildings uh, linked to a common methodology, uh, including the levels approach, which is a kind of a technical uh, requirement. And it would look at both the emissions from construction, operation, renovation, as well as recycling, dis uh, disposing of materials. Now, we'll see how far we get with that. Uh, will it be simply a spreadsheet or will it actually feed into um, maybe being able to contractually favour uh, a low embodied um, carbon approach with some buildings that has yet to play out, and I, I I've yet to kind of test the water to mm -hmm. see how far we can go with 
different uh, political groups uh, on that. But look, I think we need more data. Uh, we need to exchange the data yeah. uh, between countries. Um, the SEAI in Ireland have done a lot on this. Other member states have other ways in which they um, provide data on their building stock. And if we can get a, a kind of a coherent um, overview around Europe, the European Climate Foundation has done work on this. Hopefully we can then make sure that we're bringing everybody up to the same base level, at I mean, least. I would take some inspiration from the, the Danes with their embodied carbon regulations for, for new buildings and their, and their progressive tar uh, ratcheting up of, of, of targets um, every couple of years. And the Dutch with their with their policy similarly, and they're the ones I, I guess I'm most most familiar with. But I will say this, that from my experience, um, uh, this has been an area up until comparatively recently that's been very unknowable and uh, and um, just seemed very distant. Um, but some of the new tools that are emerging, um, and uh, thanks to the advent of manufacturers getting certifications through environmental product declarations and the French uh, product environmental passports as well uh, for, uh, for, for, for like you know, building services and heat pumps and, and ventilation systems and everything else. Um, it's become possible for us, even as a publisher, and we've been able to commission calculations on buildings, uh, embodied carbon calculations, full uh, cradle to grave calculations um, for a few hundred quid. You know, wow. um, and uh, very detailed and and transparent calculations that I'm able to interrogate and get really lost in the in the anarchy of us. You know, <laughs> yeah, you I, do I love your data, Jess. <laughs> that is the real danger with all of this that we can uh, end up uh, being fascinated by by the metrics in all of this. But I think certainly as somebody involved in public life, I have to bring it right back to what is the social value of this? What yeah. is the actual change in in ordinary people's working lives or daily lives uh, and i think particularly when one is within the brussels bubble it's easy to be surrounded by the lobbyists from industry from the construction manufacturers uh, but i'm also doing my best to reach out to housing bodies to uh, groups that are concerned about renoviction which has become a phrase yeah. in city berlin uh, i think it made its way into the dial debates here in ireland over the last few days. So I'll certainly be lis listening to housing bodies. I was just um, tic-tacking with uh, Michaela Kaur from the city of Vienna. And obviously Vienna has a fantastic um, uh, hundred years of history of the cost rental model. So the voice of cities like Vienna will be important in all of this to make sure that we don't lose sight of the social benefits uh, of this uh, of of what we are trying to do, okay. but I think the big the big picture is the money is there. We need to just give the certainty that, that allows it uh, to flow. And one last thing I would just mention is th this funny concept of the new European Bauhaus, which uh, Ursula von der Leyen threw into the mix. And heartening back to the first Bauhaus a hundred years ago, how can we bring issues like beauty, elegance? into the mix when we upgrade our buildings because we don't want to simply wrap every building in styrofoam and say <laughs> our job is done no, we, want to, we, we want to have beautiful buildings as well as um high energy performance ones as well i mean it was almost there karen like you were sort of reading my mind and my final question to you and what it would be and it was talking around the sort of the big picture and the messaging and 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 how to influence this but my my question was sort of you know, 
what would your observations be or your your suggestions be maybe on um sort of speaking to those action groups or people who are feeling you know slightly frustrated or wanting to see said you know regulatory environment to bring that change around what is the place for us to channel our energies and how do we assist with this sort of exchange of data or with the collaboration or you know you've you've got a history of you know being out on the street marching yourself and and now you've got a seat at the table um you know in Europe what sorts of of yeah what would your sort of advice be to to those groups to to groups about trying to help bring that change about i think it's really important that these changes can happen at a community level and within the legislation we want to have reference to the one stop shops of providing good advice to the ordinary joanna soap who wants to do up her home uh, and i think it's important as well that we incentivize community action quite often it makes sense in a street or a road where there's 10 homes uh, of similar age and uh, typology that you do the work together. So I think there will be opportunities to work at a community level to make these changes happen. I, I think it, it it's better than if everybody goes about it their own way, looking for the grant for themselves. Yeah. Um, but if you can get 10, 10 buildings or 100 homes to cooperate, I think you can achieve you can achieve a lot more in terms of cost savings, but sometimes in terms of the energy that's employed, particularly in countries where um, where uh, community energy and district heating uh, is the norm. So I think this will change a lot of what we do. I think there'll be opportunities in it. I also think that we will come across problems that we haven't fully anticipated yet. So I think every few years we'll have to go back and say, What's working right? What's not working at all? And we'll have to kind of rethink things a bit. I think for our, our friends and colleagues in the UK, I think you will be doing some things better than us. And in other areas, you won't be reaching the standard that we're looking for. But I think we can learn from each other in deciding what we do uh, in the years ahead. So the fact that you're not in the EU doesn't mean that we won't be working with each other, watching each other and learning from each other in the solutions that are needed. Oh, well, I, what a wonderful way to to kind of draw our conversation um, to a close, because I think that's a very optimistic view and and it's one that I think everybody can can share. So thank you so much on, on bringing us around to that point. It's been a real pleasure listening to you and I hope that we can um, catch up again um, with you and hear about the development of those things, particularly when you talk about having, you know, a timescale in mind and coming back around and looking at what works and what doesn't work. So you've spoken a lot to the things I believe in, and I'm, I'm very grateful that you've joined us today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. The pleasure. The pleasure was mine. Talk thank to you again. Thanks thank for coming you. on, Karen.